It's the Loose Filter Podcast, episode number 108. Inspire, imitate, and steal the spectrum of musical copying. With you, as always, I am your host, Stuart Sims, and uh, I am joined on this episode with by Lisette Kaninenberg and Dave Gant, and we have a conversation about musical inspiration, imitation, and theft. What's the difference? How does it happen? What does it sound like? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it both? Uh, this uh, conversation was prompted by the recent Blurred Lines court decision, and we listened to uh, that particular example, but along with a bunch of others. And uh, we listened to try to hone in a little bit on what the difference among being inspired by something, kind of imitating something to develop a style, or uh, you know, just outright copying something to the degree that it's no longer your original work, where those sort of uh, boundaries might be and, and what this process is like in music, because music's a collaborative art. And so uh, these things are necessary to uh, the way that musical uh, you know work happens, but uh, also we have to have boundaries about what uh, is appropriate and what isn't in terms of um, using somebody else's original work. So anyway, the conversation I think you'll find pretty interesting. We have lots of examples that uh, come from a wide variety of styles and uh, uh, a couple of laughs along the way. As always, you can find the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and subscribe at either of those places, and our website is loosefilter.com. Hope you enjoy this episode. Loose Filter Podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Sims, here with my co-hosts, Lisette Koninenberg and Dave Gant. And this episode's topic was inspired by uh, a court case that's been in the news recently that we will talk about in a little bit, but it uh, got Dave and me first, and then we brought Lisette in on the conversation about um, musical inspiration, you know, where musical ideas come from, and and uh, uh, Dave and I had a conversation uh, about stylistic transformation a couple of episodes ago, and and traced how oh yeah how blues became how blues became funk, and and we talked a lot about the uh, you know how musical evolution like is is ideas being transmitted mm-hmm. from one artist to another right. through time, and if you kind of take a fifty or hundred year chunk, you can see one set of ideas really blossom. You know, and 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 we took and that. we also kind of touched on it in the recontextualization episode. Yeah, yeah, we did a little bit. So, so this is something that is uh, fundamental to musical creation. That ideas are uh, musical styles develop and are evolve recycled. collaboratively. Right? It's a collaborative art in its creation. It's a collaborative art in its performance. And it's like you know, like rock music or hip hop or just name a style, pick a style. But you know. Viennese classical style didn't come from one person's brain. There were, you know, one person kind of had one great insight and somebody else went, hey, I, I like that. They started playing with it, did something else, and so forth. But we live in an age where creative work has become uh, property. It's become <laughs> copyrighted. because, And also because of recordings. Because a piece of music is no longer an idea represented by notation, you literally it's also kind of like an object. Play, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of ride that rides this fine line of is it like a verb or is it a noun? 
And right. it's, of course, as soon as you make it a thing, you can sell it and people make a lot of money. And so the, the idea that, no, that's my idea. I deserve to make money off of that and anything that's derivative of that is a really tricky, murky, complicated question and dangerous question when it comes to creative work of any kind. There are some blurred lines. There are some blurred lines. Uh, Very, very, (laughs) very blurry lines. Uh, So we thought we we would, it would be interesting in this episode to kind of chew over this, uh, 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 sense of like like where do you draw a distinction what's okay what's not okay what kinds of this activity happens okay and so as i thought about it it occurred to me and i wanted to use this to sort of frame the conversation that there are three like big categories of you know this kind of inspiration and collaboration that go on in musical creation and i think i would call them loosely inspiration borrowing and stealing. So, uh, you know, in reverse order, stealing is when I like your sounds so much, I'm just copying them. I'm just making your sounds copy. with very few sound, very few alterations. You know, maybe tweaking it to make it appeal to another audience or something. And then there's uh, borrowing where I'm going to take your idea, but I'm going to use it as clay in some way and, and shape it. And sometimes it may be easy to hear where the source, you know, inspiration is. Sometimes, sometimes it, it turns into something pretty new. Maybe something pretty new. And then there's the the other kind, which is just inspiration, which is your sounds, you know, kind of kick my explorations in a direction. So we may share, uh, you know, stylistic traits or certain kind of musical gestures, but the material uh, from my stuff and your stuff is totally original. So it's those three kind of big categories. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Anything to add, elaborate on that? Well, let, let, why, don't we, why don't we hear some examples? All right. Well, I thought we'd start with, we're talking about recorded <laughs> music. <laughs> Let's go to the videotape. Uh, uh, back in 1958, Chuck we have Berry, all these on videotape. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we get our samples. No, we have them on reel-to-reel. Um, oh, God. <laughs> the, uh, I, I wanted to first start with the easy category, stealing. Like, when it's just like, man, you straight up copied that person's recording. It makes me think of that Reddit meme of the, uh, this is yours. You made and this? Yeah, you made this. I, I made, this. made this. And just, he turns around, everybody loves it. And it's about, yeah. Right. It's, that's the eternal exactly struggle of yeah. the original content producer. You make something Someday we're going to have a podcast where we don't mention it. Reddit. Somebody else comes along and goes, oh, no, I made this now. And everybody goes crazy. Yeah. Well, you know. Reddit is one of the main <laughs> hanging out places on the internet these days, so it's uh, it's a little bit like not mentioning the town square. Anyway, wait, is there a town? Square? I know I got oddly defensive. About <laughs> you did. Reference. I'm like, what? I read Reddit, bro. It's okay. Why are you? Why are you? Why are you criticizing my internet surfing habits? I have to go find somewhere cooler to get my internet culture. Tumblr, bro. <laughs> Tumblr, bro. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so I thought we'd start with uh, some examples of some copying. This is 1958. Chuck Berry uh, recorded a tune called Sweet Little Sixteen, and uh, it sounds like this.
then the Beach Boys in 1963 released a recording of what they claimed was an entirely different song called Serving USA, and I think you'll find it's uh, just a little similar. It's not quite that different. If everybody had a across the USA, then everybody be served like California. I'm kind of glad they stole it, to be honest. Like, uh, well, but don't bury the don't bury the lead. It's that's obvious. Oh yeah, it's no, obviously it's, uh, the same they, song. They, they right? stole the song. They stole the song. No, but Chuck Berry. The... <laughs> sorry. Yeah, and you're on fire tonight. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I I see that yeah that was definitely stolen and all, but. There's a lot more variety added to it at the same time, at least that I heard. Um, you know, the harmonies. Well, you can't deny the Beach Boys charm. I mean. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> You're so convincing, Dave. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think the Beach Boys version was a little more uh, energetic, and it had a little more variety because they did the thing where the uh, it really emphasized the, the front of the bar and the front of the phrase because... The instruments would stop and it would just be the kick yeah. drum. Exactly. Where with the berry, he strums throughout all the, the verses. Thing. And it just, it makes There's it feel. No, the, the vocal harmonies don't come in. Yeah, the so, berry yeah. more obviously has a foot in blues. <clears throat> yeah. I think, in classic yeah. blues. And uh, uh, the Beach Boys is more toward rock and roll proper. Uh, but they stole that song. They did, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. But they just did a good job of stealing, I right. guess. Uh, the other famous example when we first were. Where I was first thinking of examples of this that comes to mind is one from my childhood, and that's the theme to Ghostbusters, which I knew and loved before I knew the other song that it is very obviously at at least strongly derived from. I don't think you can make a an argument for this as being literally stolen, but it's copied. but it's made of stolen parts it's made of stolen parts i think it's a good way to put it. this is uh let's play the original first this is huey lewis uh in the news uh the tune is i want a new drug <laughs> And here is uh, and here is uh, Ray Parker Jr.'s uh, song that was served as the very still very famous. I mean, people all over the world seem to still know this song. Um, uh, the the theme to Ghostbusters. This is Ray Parker Jr. So much more attached to the Ghostbusters theme. <laughs> They're both really catchy, though. <laughs> they are both super catchy. Well, I mean, I think the bass line in the Ghostbusters theme—it's way, way better. It's it's much more interesting. Well, it, it only adds two notes, but still, it's and like well, it's, it's a way better bridge, sound. But the end of yeah. that, I mean, that's, yeah. that's just also super fun. So, that's so true. like yeah, that's that is awesome. a good point. That yeah. is a good point. No, I, I feel like I feel like Ray Parker so Jr. I feel like Ray Parker Jr. heard you know any drug was like. 
It's almost there. It's almost there. <laughs> and he filled we out can right. Make it is that, it's not so. It's not quite like stolen. It's like he copied it and then showed it over. Showed him how it's done. It's like he copied a black and white drawing and colored it in. And colorized said, it. Yeah, colorized and said I did the whole thing. And and of course, uh, you know, Huey Lewis said. In case that one's hard for you to hear, though, um, that one's not not quite as evident if your ear isn't attuned to like uh, chord progressions. Or something like that. I found on YouTube, and I'll play just a little clip of it. It's "I Want a New Drug" and the Ghostbusters theme uh, mashed up. Super Which is a- actually the, the 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 ultimate version of that <laughs> song. It sounds great. The best of both worlds. <laughs> uh, this is this is the. It's like uh, in the sound in the fury, right? Uh, well, obscure literary reference, I guess, doesn't work with pop tunes. But Faulkner kept writing it till he got it right. Yeah, this would be the ultimate version of the the apotheosis of this song. Anyway, this is the the two songs layered one on top of the other, and you'll hear how they're basically the same song. Isn't that, isn't that isn't that great? Like very satisfying. <laughs> they sound so good together. I would love to see a reunion tour. Ray Parker Jr. <laughs> and Louis Louis they're the not news. touring together. They're literally playing <laughs> yeah. simultaneously on two stages on opposite ends of the crowd. <laughs> they have to pitch match all their tunes so they're in the same key. Yeah, be great. Like an antiphonal concert. I would. I might. I'd go to that. Well, go you'd to have that. to come on just to hear this one live. Because I, I kind of hear where you're coming from, Dave, on that. Those two together are the, the uh, apotheosis, apotheosis of whatever song, whatever platonic ideal of that song is, that's it. We've yep. reached it when you mash them up together. This next example I kind of tagged on the end of, to be like, uh, again, outright theft happens. And this is what happens, this is what it sounds like when one artist just steals another artist's track. I would think in the, I would guess in the hopes that they could just get away with it. And maybe nobody would find out and they would think it was their Or they'd song. like it so much that they wouldn't care. Yeah. This is uh, uh, Supersonic by a previously not well-known act called J.J. Fad, And then Fergie from the Black Eyed Peas recorded a track called Fergalicious. And I think you'll find... It's the same number of syllables. Some, s- some, <laughs> some similarities here. Supersonic is a word when people start to listen. Especially bigger those are just some serious syllabic similarities <laughs> well it was so easy to intercut those two because they're just the same track yeah I mean, it's it's embarrassing it's embarrassing so that's it it does happen so we see things like all along the spectrum of 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 stealing uh uh copying being inspired by, uh, paying homage to, and and two recent cases uh, that were in the news that were big judgments were the Sam Smith Tom Petty thing, and the uh, Robin Thicke and the estate of Marvin Gaye court cases. That was the one that was recently decided that uh, uh, sort of prompted this whole conversation. But in the first example. Sam Smith, whose who's recording, Stay With Me, won uh, Grammy, mm-hmm. um, uh, was, well, there were, 
I'm not sure exactly how it went down. It never became a court case, but he quickly gave Petty a, a, a yeah. songwriter credit. So, so he acknowledged that these songs are similar enough that he just pre. So Petty got a Grammy. Litigation, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Tom, hey, Tom Petty. Petty, yeah, yeah. Petty. They, they, I would imagine some people looked at it and told Sam Smith's lawyers, um, it would probably be good to just go ahead and give him a songwriter credit and get the money that way rather than than try to deal with do it with a. And it's it's the Tom Petty song uh, "Won't Back Down." Uh, and so if you listen to them, uh, you can hear that they're quite similar. So here is, here is uh, Tom Petty's uh, Won't Back Down. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. No, and here is uh, Sam Smith's track, Stay With Me. Won't you stay with me? Cause you're all I need. This ain't love, it's clear to see. But darling, stay with me. So, I mean, he couldn't even change it a little bit. Like, I, I mean, that is so so directly the same song i just he could have just made a few little adjustments and it wouldn't have been the same but that's just, I mean, come well on. yeah the chord progressions obviously are the same but the it's melody. a pretty common chord no, progression that so it's the melodic gesture it's the melodic gesture yeah. that makes it but it's a good song oh I'm not, so yeah. you know it's uh you know he slowed it down he lowered the key and yeah. and he put this sort of gospel styling on top of it but um those are uh, it's I, lifted it's lifted so they made yeah. the right call i think in giving tom petty the songwriter credit and yeah. i but i do wonder if this is this to me seems like a case where sam smith could have un, accidentally written the same song I, I i wonder about that like i think I, you you're right i mean it, that happens all the time like that happens really often because a lot even if you think you're writing a new song a good earworm is gonna you know potentially be in there right. in well i head. think that's definitely the case with the other case um <laughs> oh god i'm just horrible tonight i'm sorry guys uh, but with with the blurred lines uh case i i feel like it very is clearly its own song like yes it steals from the style it it takes from the original a certain um, like certain grooves and things like that, but it's not the same material. Where I I feel like in the Tom Petty Sam Smith case, it's you can make an argument for it being the same material. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, what's funny is that like when I first heard that, I was like, oh, so he made that into a ballad. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I like no, I, I didn't I wasn't listening to the words at the time, and I was like, oh no, it kind of works this way. And then it was like, oh they. It's calling another song. <laughs> he doesn't realize that's a cover well, song. Well, and it's interesting because in that case, I really agree with what happened, that Petty got the songwriting credit, but then in the Blurred Lines case, I actually really disagree with the decision that they came to. Right, so the, the case that was recently decided, and of course it'll still be in appeal and so forth in that process, is that uh, 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 Robin Thicke and Pharrell co-wrote uh, and produced the track Blurred Lines a couple years ago it was a big single um, and both of them openly talked about the influence that the uh, Marvin Gaye uh, track got to give it up 
uh, had on blurred lines in particular, and and we're we're really enthusiastic about it. We're like, yeah, we you know we love Marvin Gaye, and we're we were happy to do this kind of riff on his yeah. thing, and uh, in several places, both of them on you know in interviews on the record talked about that. Well, uh, I I'm guessing this piqued the interest of the estate, the family of Marvin Gaye, because they ended up was it was it as a sta- the it estate of Marvin Gaye, who's his family who sued. And uh, said that they, which makes it really interesting because it's not actually the original artist; it's it's the family of the original artist. Right, and this is this issue of it's it's not music anymore; it's a thing. They're protecting the property, the family's an, property, an intellectual property of some kind. Yeah, an artistic creation of a member of their family who is deceased. They're they're uh, uh, related to him in various ways, of course. But his and children, they they in fact won. Uh, they won the decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah they won the decision. And it's uh, about seven million dollars or so was the price tag. I, I was calculated as a percentage of. But can we live? Like, can we give those a listen to? Because yeah, I, I mean, I really feel like from from what my impression is, it's it is a clear inspiration. But I don't, I don't think they're the same song at all. This is uh, Marvin Gaye. Uh, got to give it up. <laughs> For comparison, here is Robin Thicke's uh, a quick excerpt from Blurred Lines. Everybody get up. To my ear, and like we were all three in agreement on, this is not copying. This no. is not stealing. I hear clear inspiration. And I think that, that Thick and Pharrell were being honest about being inspired by it. I mean, you can hear specific sounds that they borrowed, like the cowbell. Yeah, the, yeah it's the, definitely you know, the, high like cowbell, I said, the groove kind of, of yeah. it is the same, but the material, I mean, there's some pretty distinctive material in Blurred Lines that I do not hear in the Marvin Gaye. It, even though that influence is definitely there, I, I really yeah. don't agree with the fact that they made the call that yeah. it was a copy. I, I find it disappointing and also potentially dangerous uh, that is what <laughs> to, is to make to this real, ruling because the fact is, like, uh, I mean, there's only so many so many good grooves out there. And and if you can't even come close to, to one of them, that's already Quite dangerous, dangerous because it stifles creative. Yeah, work, well, right? I mean, that's a, if it sets a precedent where it's like, yeah, you can't even come close to... Uh, well, how you would know? you even... And get... that artist can even not even exist anymore in terms of just well, like, and still creating things. Yeah, one... Like, it's not like that artist is still trying to make a living and you're infringing upon his right to make that. You know, well, that, yeah, and that's that's still, That to me also really yeah. makes it even more interesting. Yeah, but well, like, like, even so without that. So how long that will ask, that last? Yeah. yeah well, I mean, how long, I mean, will we be Everything starts with thing? Mickey Mouse. Everything from Mickey Mouse going forward is, is yeah. how, how long is copyright, copyright forever. Exactly. How long since um, Mickey Mouse was created. But uh, uh, I think, it, like, if this becomes the norm... How would, like what we talked about with the stylistic evolution, 
from blues to funk. How could that even have happened? Right. If anything, if I do anything that sounds like anything another musician has done, I'm going to get sued. Well, and I mean, this how... is the notion of property, of intellectual property, is I guess what I'm getting after is fundamental, fundamentally incompatible with the nature of music. Yeah. I, and I agree with both those, but I feel like this is such a so loose a um, a definition of copying here. You know, I mean, it's just it's like if this is setting the precedent. Yeah, it's if very this concerned. is what copying is, then like yeah. we we lose like sixty percent of our music uh, or more. <laughs> you know, at least yeah, I was being conservative. And so this for for new and young artists in particular, it's pretty it's pretty frightening and disconcerting. In fact, I would assert that you have to have musical borrowing and copying to a degree. For music to be sensible and acceptable to a culture. If I come along as a composer or a recording artist or any kind of musical creative, and I make sounds that are 100% unprecedentedly new. No one's going to care about you until somebody copies you. History tells us that first of all, but before no one cares about my music (laughs) and until someone copies me and does it in a more user-friendly way, usually, before that... Anyone who hears my music is going to be totally offended and alienated. That far more often than not is a historical pattern when we have had true musical iconoclasts just sort of emerge out of nowhere. That they are rejected because people can't handle music that is truly new. It's very difficult. You've got to have some roots. That's the most difficult listening experience of all. To music for familiarity and comfort. Yeah. Yeah. it's kind of supposed to be that way. And so, yeah, if you take away the ability of a musical culture to pass ideas around and, and, and work on them together collaboratively, then you, you take away one of the fundamental things that music is. And that's why I, I totally agree with your characterization, Dave, that this is uh, dangerous if it becomes yeah. precedent. Well, and, and also, who's, who's going to decide what we're going to make that decision on. Like, I mean, it, it, where's the rubric, I guess, that they're going to be looking at? Well, there at? was, in this case, like, it's interesting. how do they make that choice? If you really you know? want to nerd out, there's a musicologist, a uh, plaintiff's musicologist, and the jury's you can decision... You that? Yeah. Awesome. The jury's decision uh, hinged a lot on what that person wrote in her report. Um, but I, what, what puzzled me was... Where, where, why didn't they have a music theorist report? Where was where was the analysis? Because the 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 musicologist report talked a lot about style and and what Marvin Gaye did that was unique within the Motown style, specific to him, and that Pharrell and and Robin Thicke borrowed a couple of those very specific gestures. Um, uh, uh, but that's, you know, that's a stylistic description. That's not the musical material. Material itself. That's the concerning part. And so, so, you know, it, it, it also gets to this question of where does originality in here in a musical idea? Is it in the, the composition, like the guts and the organs of the composition? Or is it in the skin of the style and the timbre and the instrumentation and the? But also, can we just say how hilarious it is that the case that this is all happening over is called? It's about a song called Blurred Lines. I'm sorry, that's just awesome. That's yeah. that's hilarious. Um, and and you know that that provides the perfect uh, terrible pun segue into the next group of examples that that uh, we have, uh, which blur the lines even more. I think when you get to composed music. When you talk about stylistic conversations that go on for hundreds of years, um, and uh, in in our 
modern era, the last few decades or so, the composed music that we come into contact most often, uh, uh, come into contact with most often as a culture, is movie music, movie scores. And some of our most famous movie composers, or music for our most famous movies, uh, fall at various places on this spectrum, and a lot of people don't realize. They got some sticky fingers. Got some sticky fingers. Uh, some some uh, some are some are inspired by. Some are borrowing, and some are just stealing. They're yeah. just taking those ideas. And in I a lot of cases, this. it's legal because if they're stealing public domain ideas, then it's okay. Um, uh, and some of them may may fall, you know, more toward homage or riffing on or something like that. But I thought it would be fun to. Uh, uh, jump from the world of recorded music a little bit to the world of composed music and hear how movie scores that we know and love aren't as wholly original, you know, as we might expect them to be. So I thought I'd start with our most revered living film composer, not to throw uh, stones at a, an institution. Wait, that was a terrible metaphor. Not to uh, take shots at John <laughs> it's been Williams. an evening of terrible metaphors. <laughs> Not to take shots at a composer whose work I respect a great deal, but John Williams, in many cases, got ideas from uh, places that were already there. Just a few. Just a few ideas. Let me just just play you uh, uh, one of the most vivid bits of orchestral music from my childhood. And this is a scene from toward the beginning of Star Wars, Episode 4, A New Hope. Uh, Let's be clear. Let's be clear. Uh, when when uh, 3PO and R2 have landed on Tatooine, they've escaped the ship and, and they're setting out across the desert to find Obi-Wan Kenobi and deliver Princess Leia's Because they're message. like the best characters or, you know, just like whatever. <laughs> and, and of course, those, those iconic scenes of them, you know, trekking across the desert with that big skeleton of some creature that was like burned in my brain as a little kid. And this music was super evocative. Uh, and this is, this is the music I'm talking about. So pretty great, right? Like super evocative and, oh, and, yeah. and a lot of oh, yeah. I can different kind of sounds. I can picture the muted... scene in my mind. Oh, yeah. Super familiar. Yeah. You know, muted brass on these uh, chromatic lines. And, the you know, it, uh, imagine my surprise when I was about 15 years old and I discovered Stravinsky and was listening to the Rite of Spring. Hey, wait a minute. And heard this. That's pretty bad. That's not one of looking his, good there. <laughs> that's one of his more egregious examples. But you know, I, 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 I ain't even mad because I feel <laughs> I like it's good music. It's, it's good it music, works. 
And it's also putting Stravinsky sounds in front of millions and millions and millions of pairs of ears that wouldn't have uh, because heard apparently those sound Fantasia ones. didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but but you know I think I think hearing that soundtrack as a kid helped prepare my ears for being a teenager who encountered Stravinsky and thought, well, well yeah, yeah, this is familiar. I dig this, sure. Um, and that's that's uh, because it it had Star Wars as a score. Has roots, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, and you can hear the roots in the music. Uh, one of the other interesting roots of the Star Wars score is less evident. It's not quite as borrowed or or copied as the example that I just played. But the first great movie composer, the the composer who more than any other innovated what it meant to compose for film, was a Viennese composer named Eric Korngold who was considered to be in the line of great Viennese composers that goes all the way back, uh, Haydn, Mozart, and uh, but had to flee uh, Germany, had to flee the Nazis and immigrate because to the United States. Terrible. And he uh, began composing for movies. And in 1941, he wrote uh, a movie, a score for a, a pretty forgettable movie called King's Row. Um, but... Uh, John Williams knew this score and he knew Corn Gold. And it's interesting to me how the, the main title score for King's Row so clearly inspires the main title theme from Star Wars. But the main title theme from Star Wars is still, it's clearly its own piece of music. So here are those two back to back. I love this example. This is uh, famously uh, the theme to Star Wars. <laughs> And here is Eric Korngold's main title to King's Row. My mom loves the movie King's Row and does not consider it forgettable at all. So I had to point that out. Well, I, I stand corrected given your mom's history <laughs> as a well-respected and cited film critic uh, that my opinion of King's Rose <laughs> revised. Had Ronald Reagan in it, for God's sake. That's the one where he says, my legs. Or my legs. Yeah. So so that, so that I think you, obviously the Star Wars theme is its own, it's, it's, it's its own music. But the connections are obvious. I think like the, the chord progressions are similar the, I think, the brass gestures the, or, the orchestrational gestures and the feeling of um like the silences springing off uh uh, uh into pick up these notes but it that resolve yeah. downwards you know that rhythmic feeling bouncing off of a silence that williams that kind of rhythmic fanfare-esque you know feel yeah it, williams was obviously inspired by corn gold score and and Probably, you know, not to arm whatever, you know, armchair quarterback or reverse engineer, but it sounds like he maybe started playing with the corn gold music and kind of found his way to his own music. Yeah. Um, um, but, but when Adams, uh, when Adams, when Williams does these things, uh, they really don't to me, 
uh, impinge toward copying or stealing very often. It's it's really much more often inspired by great music. And like Dave, you and I were talking the other day. It's also important to remember that when you're composing for a movie, like you're on a deadline. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes but you have also, like a week. Two you have weeks. to produce. Yeah. And, and so you're going to look and take your ideas from anywhere that you can. And also because the music is serving the film, it has to hit certain buttons well, in the audience. If, as long as it does its function, if it does it really successfully, then people often will forgive the borrowing. Yeah, I mean, I, I can. Right, it doesn't have like, to be oh, wholly. Original. I can certainly I give it because you because That's you smart. you know what you're being paid to do is put music to a film. They're not saying. You need to come up with innovative new music, <laughs> like you know. I mean, it's Only like and, completely original. And having that sort of catalog of themes to to borrow from or be inspired by in your head is part of the reason you're getting paid. You so know? is that is that bar ridiculous? I mean, is that just a ridiculous thing that uh, uh, is is that a, a some sort of absurdly purist notion of authenticity? That your music should be completely original because once you really look at it, nobody's. Music well, I think it's or... pretty much impossible to do, or or uh, it's it's possible, but no one's really gonna. Uh, I think to, to a it. certain extent, people really respond to authenticity and originality, but that's not to say that it is like superior in terms of how we should, you know, objectively look at music. I think it's just one of the few pieces that can make something appealing. Um, I think right now we have a tendency to. Um, sometimes respond to authenticity but sometimes we don't people eat up music that has you know samples all over it so it, it, i don't know i don't think it matters too much one way to one way or the other and i guess i i come down on sort of respecting the theft in certain cases you know where it's like ah, oh, it's good thing to take you know <laughs> that was a good, good call <laughs> yeah it, as long as it's used successfully yeah. you go oh all right. and i think with film music it's like it's it's much more utilitarian music than it is sort of you know well and or or if you take a thing somebody did and and do it better i, I kind of go well that's the better version of that thing yeah it? here's an example and it's even more forgivable keep it on the john williams train here's an example where i think he borrowed some music and he actually does it in a much more appealing charismatic way this first example is the beginning of the last movement to howard hansen's uh, romantic symphony the mid-century american composer this is his second symphony beginning of the third movement and here is the main title from E.T. by John Williams. different music but like like i mean obviously williams kind of you know i mean he knew the answer because he kept that string gesture mm -hmm. i mean he it's a lot faster but he kept the same orchestrational gesture and he kept the idea of uh a lone that brass epic. fanfare yeah. but instead of being but there's a little more rhythmic interest the horns it's the trumpets and, and it's, it's got it, a little spice in there he does yeah. have the asymmetrical meter that i don't think the hand i've conducted the hansen symphony before i don't remember there being the five eight bars yeah. that, that williams throws into the et and so it, that's an instance of where there are some clear roots in that music. It, it's not stolen uh, to me at all. And I think Williams' version is, is more appealing. 
Uh, I mean, plus part, you get to watch. That's a, I mean, part of that. I was like twelve theater, when yeah. ET came out. Yeah. And I saw it in the theater, and that music's in my, you know, deep in my my cultural memory. But but um, uh, I, that's how I feel about the Matrix example. Oh yeah, that's that's another one that's that's pretty fascinating. Um, the the score from the Matrix is heavily influenced by John Adams' Harmony Lara. I don't know if you've ever heard those similarities before. We could play those real quick. So there's one that I bet uh, most people miss because yeah. most people don't know Harmony Lara, the John Adams Symphony. That those, it's those one of the best are... things that ever happened to the world of music ever. <laughs> it, it it is. It, I think it's one of the great pieces of the 20th century. But then again, so is the Matrix. The, Ma- the Matrix is also one of the best things to happen to the movie world ever. So yay well, for everybody! And, and I think that the the score to the Matrix is drawn from the right sound world. I mean, Adams is it's a very oh. powerful sound world that resonates with a contemporary audience. I think it is and, used very effectively. Yeah. And so it was a good choice for that good movie. Good theft, once again. Yeah. But but this is that's really copying. Yeah. I mean, that's not like a Williams kind of I yeah. sort of borrowed from it and I transformed it. So what did we learn today? That music is just the same stuff over and over, and it is a little frightening to see what is happening now with the ability to record music, what that means for music, music, musical ideas. Wow, I don't know why that was so difficult. Being, being borrowed or copied or inspiring or recycled or however you want to put it, but it's going to happen, and, and how are we going to deal with it, man? Yeah, and I, I'm just, uh, I actually, like, came out of this uh, little session here, like, more um, accepting of the of the stealing, of the outright theft, actually, like, in, in certain situations, so. I, for me, for me, I draw kind of a different, I mean, I agree absolutely with, with, uh, with Lissette's point, uh, which you made earlier, that this is kind of scary precedent legally, yeah. in the way that, that ideas are being treated as things, uh, when ideas net always necessarily have very 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 fuzzy edges and very porous and that's boundaries how culture works and, and culture does forward. too because people interact and share and and bounce off of each other constantly in all kinds of ways and we're we're we've created this legal practice and this legal idea of copyright in its various manifestations that is clearly incompatible with cultural practice. But at the same time, there are also clear cases where you, credit should be given, you know. Yeah. Right. And and, right. Where, well, and who's going to make the decision on how we distinguish? I mean, where is that going to come that's from? Why, that's what I'm really concerned about. I mean, at least about. I haven't heard a serious voice that just says, throw it all out. We shouldn't have any... Creator shouldn't have any rights. I mean, no, that's, that's, we, we lived through that time, and we know that that's not the that's best no good. So how are right? we going to figure out that borderline? That well, I, I mean, I think we'll have some a lot of copyright litigation in the next few decades. That it's going to be interesting. To lots see. of major yeah. challenges. We're going to have computers that analyze it for us, so they're impartial. <laughs> that would be horrible. 
Um, but what but I was going to say but is, fair. here's the message I would like to, to draw from all this for our listeners, is that if you like music, a thing, if you like a particular kind of music or a particular work of music or song or, or something, it, it doesn't exist in a vacuum and it didn't come out of nowhere. Treat it like it's one node on the internets, on the interwebs, and you can just click from link to link to link to link to link and keep going, like falling down the Wikipedia hole or the TV tropes hole. If you hear a movie score that you love, listen to that composer's other movie scores and then read about them and find out what their influences were and then go listen to that music and then find out who they're influenced and then go listen to that music. Because it's all nested, you know. It's all, all this progression on a yeah. timeline. It's all it's blurred lines. Yeah. Doing always, that again. Always coming back to that. Doing always that again. coming back. It's such. It's the perfect. <laughs> I mean, theme. come on. Come how on. could you not? Come on. How could I resist that? It's it's the the case that brought the conversation to this episode, and and it is the perfect theme for what we've been talking about. So I, I guess just follow the roots of what you love is the message that I do. Yeah, from. and it, that there doesn't have to be judgment attached to copying or borrowing or whatever. As long as if you're going to do it directly, just give credit, man. You know? Yeah. That's just, that's just right. how it is. Don't be that guy. Come on, Fergie. <laughs> as I walk through the valley where I harvest my grain, I take a look at my wife and realize she's very plain. But that's just perfect for an Amish like me. You know I shun fancy things like electricity. At 4.30 in the morning, I'm milking cows. Jebediah feeds the chickens and Jacob plows. Fool, and I've been milking and plowing so long that even Ezekiel thinks that my mind is gone. I'm a man of the land. I'm into